from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Now, friends, let us prepare our hearts and minds for the worship of God. Testament lesson this morning comes from the lectionary, which this summer is moving through Genesis and Romans. Today we come to Genesis 25, verses 19 through 34. You can find them beginning on page 20 in your pew Bibles. Hear now God's word for you and for me. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Paddan Aram, sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the elder shall serve the younger. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle, so they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore he was called Edom. Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went away. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Our second scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, which can be found on page 147 of the New Testament in your Bibles. Listen now for the word of the Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This, too, is the word of the Lord. And let us pray. Lord, may your old words speak to us in new ways today that we might be changed by this time together, that we might be stronger as a family of faith and more prepared to be your disciples in the world. Amen. Like faithful seekers before us, we read scripture for a lot of reasons. Usually these three are among them. We seek to know God. We want to know ourselves a little bit better. And in the end, we want some instruction. We want guidance. We want to know how to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ after we leave this place, when we have to go out and interact with other human beings. We're anxious to know how God is at work in and through us. Our text from Genesis does help us to understand ourselves and God, and we'll get to that in a moment. But if we come to this story of the birth of Jacob and Esau as a morality tale, looking for a life lesson or looking for some faithful person to model ourselves after, we'll be disappointed. Our attention is drawn to Jacob, this complex character who becomes the nation Israel. But Jacob's life is fraught, full of conflict. This story doesn't paint the picture of a model of faith on the contrary, the behavior of these characters actually offends our sensibilities, doesn't it? When we go back just two generations in this story, we remember God's promise to Abraham, that promise of descendants that made Sarah laugh in her old age. We remember God testing Abraham, telling him to sacrifice his only son, or actually not his only son, but his son, Isaac, and seemingly putting that promise of ancestors at risk. We remember the story of Isaac finding Rebekah and her faithful decision to be his wife. And we come today to this story and hear that Rebekah, like her mother-in-law Sarah, was barren. Nothing in Rebekah's or Isaac's power could give them children, but Isaac's prayers to God were answered, 
and Rebecca was pregnant, not just with one child, but twins. In this history, we see a pattern develop. There's a human impossibility. God intervenes to make the impossible possible, and humans respond gratefully and faithfully until we come to the birth of Jacob and Esau. From the womb, these brothers are in conflict, so much that their worried mother prays to God about it. And she learns that more conflict is coming along with her babies. The Lord says to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you will be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. The text doesn't tell us why this will be so. There's no judgment of Esau here. He doesn't lose out on the birthright because he has failed or because he's inadequate. And Jacob doesn't win out because he's more deserving or because of anything good that he has done. But the lives of these twins will not follow any expected patterns. They turn social norms on their heads. In a world where the firstborn son was the blessed one, receiving land, respect, wealth, real animals, maybe not the little ones, this oldest son will have to serve his little brother. They'll each become nations, and the nations, Israel and Edom, will be apart. They'll be different people, they'll be at odds, they'll be in different lands. The brothers are born striving with each other, with Jacob holding on to Esau's heel. He's actually named for that moment. The name Jacob means holder of the heel or supplanter. That moment, that image, that name captures who Jacob will be for all of his life. He's a striver. He's shrewd. He's never satisfied. He chases after what he wants and what he thinks he deserves. In the words of Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, Jacob, this grandson of the promise, is a rascal compared to his faithful grandfather Abraham and his successful father Isaac. Jacob will eventually wrestle with God until his own body is injured, insisting that he will not rest until he has been blessed. This second child, born into a culture where the oldest son, son only, of the family was entitled by birth, this second child will not settle for second place. He won't wait to see what comes to him. He's born pulling himself up by pulling his brother down. The brothers are different. They have different looks, different personalities. Esau is ruddy and hairy. He becomes a hunter and an outdoorsman. Jacob is quieter. He spends his time inside. He's more of a homebody. And here's the thing. Their parents take sides. Isaac loves Esau, and Rebekah loves Jacob the most. I bet everybody in this room who has a sibling, biological or some other way, has at one time or another thought, that other kid had it so easy. He got away with everything, or she got whatever she wanted. Or maybe you've even said, mom always liked you more than me. This story takes that sentence to a whole new level. Rebecca and Jacob will even plot to trick Isaac to steal his blessing from Esau and give it to Jacob. 
But first, in today's text, the brothers are negotiating between themselves. One day, Esau comes in from the fields, and he's famished, and he finds his brother Jacob is cooking stew, so he asks for some. But instead of handing his brother a bowl, Jacob demands his birthright, and Esau agrees. He sells all that he was entitled to as the oldest son to his little brother for some stew. An uneven trade, to say the least. This text confounds us as modern readers. Putting aside for a minute the unfairness, as Sarah Kate mentioned, of the rigid cultural system that entitled a firstborn son to the family inheritance, even aside from that, this story leaves us reeling with questions. How could Esau care so little about what was his by birth? How could he value instant gratification over a future that would have been laid out for him? Was he just impulsive, short-sighted? Was he such a dolt that he allowed himself to be manipulated by his kid brother? Even knowing as we do how families can be, we still wonder how brothers, twins no less, could treat each other this way. And how could these parents, parents who weren't going to have children but received them as a gift from God, take sides and choose favorites? How could a mother help one son at the expense of the other? And we can't help asking, with some incredulity, is God really choosing someone as rascally as Jacob? Someone who manipulates and deceives? Someone who will fight and strive and test God? Yes. The answer is yes. As I said, this story is not a set of instructions for how to treat one another. And if we look to it for a human hero, we leave empty. This is not a model for family matters. But this story does show us something about ourselves as human beings. It tells us that since the beginning of families, family members have fought over power and position and favor. Siblings do fight because human beings are self-centered. They have not only said, mom always liked you better, but they've acted on that resentment in self-centered and manipulative ways. We all seek favor. We all sometimes want what the other has. This might be any of our families, biological or groups of friends or colleagues or our church family. This story captures the human experiences of sibling rivalry, favorites, drama, and schemes. Even more than that, this story captures our shared experience of trying to secure blessings for ourselves, striving our whole lives after what we think we need and want and deserve. This story also tells us something about God. It reminds us that God's purposes have always been tangled up with humans and all our self-centeredness and short-sightedness. And it reminds us that God is and always has been at work anyway, 
Jacob's life is full of conflict. He eventually becomes Israel, and that name means one who strives with God. And yet, even Jacob is blessed. Not because he deserves God's blessing, not because he's earned it. God's blessing comes to Jacob as a free gift. It's shocking, really. God is blessing this one who will strive. But this story reminds us that God's blessing has nothing to do with our notions of entitlement. Has God blessed someone who's deceptive and manipulative and self-interested? Yes, and I don't just mean Jacob. All of God's promises through all of history have come to flawed and broken people. We're not blessed because we deserve to be. We're not blessed because of any status we enjoy. God doesn't choose us because we're oldest children or our mom's favorites, because we're hardworking or well-behaved, because we're wealthy or we have influence in our community, because we're educated or ordained by our church. God throws human expectations out the window. We are blessed because God is free. Think about all the times God chooses someone who has no status, like younger children, like Jacob, like his son Joseph, who rises above his brothers, like Moses, who was supposed to have been killed when he was a baby, like David, who's the eighth son and becomes king, or women, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, the list could go on and on, or outsiders like Naomi and Ruth and Esther and the Apostle Paul, like sinners, Jacob and each of us and each member of every church family, like a kid who grew up in the backwater of Nazareth who saved the world by dying. God turns worldly status on its head God gives blessing not because we're entitled to it or because we strive after it. As much as Jacob's actions offend us, we're like Jacob. We're not satisfied. We pull ourselves up. We go after what we want. But none of our striving brings us Christ's invitation to gather with him at the table, to be part of the family we are together in him. That invitation comes to us only through the life and death of Jesus Christ. It's good news, not because it means our actions don't have consequences or because we're justified in taking whatever we think we're due, especially from our siblings. Quite the opposite. Our lives are to be spirit-filled, spirit-led, not governed by our own wants. This is what Paul is writing to the church at Rome in the text Sarah Kate read a few minutes ago. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The good news for us today is this reminder that God is at work in and through even flawed us. One early morning a few years ago, a woman I had never seen and only spoke to once came into our chapel communion service, the early one that's usually at 8 o'clock. She came alone and she sat in the back pew 
And as you all probably know, we celebrate communion by intinction in that service. Rather than having the communion elements passed down the rows, we come up and take bread and dip it into the cup. When all the other worshipers came forward to celebrate, she didn't. So after everyone had been served and seated, we started to walk back toward the last pew to offer her the elements. She shook her head and waved us off. So we went back to the front, back to the table, thinking maybe she just didn't feel comfortable because she was a first-time visitor. After the service, I introduced myself and had just a very quick exchange with her before she left, seeming to want to get out as quickly as she could. She came back a few weeks later for worship, but again stayed seated as we celebrated communion. After worship that day, I had a chance to speak with her for a few minutes. She never told me how she ended up at this church, but it seemed to me that she was struggling through some kind of conflict and that coming here was a step in that struggle. She told me that she was estranged from her family. She said that she didn't come forward for communion because, in her words, she didn't deserve to be there. She didn't offer more information, and I didn't press. I thought maybe she had been hurt by a church somewhere at some time. I did try to assure her that the communion table is Christ's own table. It isn't mine. It isn't this church's. It's a place where she's welcome, a place where we all are welcome. She nodded, but was still guarded, deep in thought about more than she was saying out loud. She sort of looked far away as we talked. She said she liked worship, but, and she trailed off. She told me that I didn't know all the things she had done. And she said again that she wasn't able to sit at Christ's table. Maybe someday, she said, maybe someday. And she thanked me and she left. I never saw her again, but I remember that conversation because even though she was a stranger to me, she was so honest about her struggle to receive a blessing in light of whatever had happened in her life and in her family. I didn't find out what those conflicts were that were burdening her. I don't know about her family. I don't know what actions she took that made her think she couldn't claim a seat at God's family table. I didn't get to share with her that our story, all of us together as a people of faith, includes all manner of families and all their failures. I didn't get to talk with her about the rascals who are part of our story or to say that we all know dysfunction. I didn't say that none of us can explain God's purposes, but that God is at work even when we don't know how. I didn't share the good news that God chooses not only the lowly and those who are without status, but people who are utterly flawed, people who make poor choices over and over again, and that God blesses us not because we strive for blessing, but in spite of our manipulations. I failed to say that I'd like to know her, that I'd like for us to strive together toward that spirit-filled life that Paul describes. I didn't talk to her about this text from Genesis that tells us so clearly that God knows who we are and all our dysfunction and chooses to work in us anyway. 
I didn't get to celebrate communion with her or show her that her family matters to this family. I wish I had. Maybe someday, by God's grace. Amen. keeping Christ's light here with us in the sanctuary, even as we have sent it out into the world. It's a great image for how much light there is to go around. Friends, go from this place in peace to love and to serve our God, knowing that the blessings of God Almighty go with you this day and forever. Amen.